Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 172nd episode of the Nauticast titled Legion Part 1, an analysis of a storm of source Daenerys 2, in which Daenerys Targaryen visits Gothic Gonzo Hell, which of course is in the form of the city of Astapor. All I get picture was Gonzo from the Muppets. Gonzo, Gonzo, Gonzo from the Muppets ru- ruling over a hideous nightmare slave city. It's, it's probably my probably my least favorite Muppets movie is the Muppets go to Astapor. I don't don't even know why they made that one. I don't know what they were thinking. I'm just imagining Gonzo as Krasny's in this in this scene. You know, like cutting it's off the, the Tokar, right, yep. and cutting the nipple off the Unsullied, and you know, talking about oh, like yeah, it's got super fucking dark. I don't know where my mind went to, but uh. But yeah, wow, Gonzo, Gonzo visits Astapor. The gang visits Astapor would be a be good. It's always sunny in Philadelphia episode too, I think as well. That uh, that might be a, honestly more appropriate. I could see them. You know, <laughs> the gang goes to Slaver's Bay. <laughs> can see that already. But yes, as as Jeff said, this is part one. We're we're doing one of our our famous two parters for this particular chapter uh, because it's it's very dense and very long. So this episode we're going to be covering. Uh, Danny's introduction to the city, meeting Krasnas Monaclaus, her and Barristan kind of viewing the Unsullied, negotiating about it. And then next week, we're going to be covering the conversation they have after they leave the slavers, Danny uh, and her little relationship with Erie, and then her her big weighty conversations about with Jorah Mormont about what to do next. So that'll be for next week. Cannot wait to do that with you, sir. But of course, we have part one, of course, to talk about here, introducing Astapor and Daenerys's new, essentially, role for the rest of the published version of A Song uh-huh. of Ice and Fire here in Slaver's Bay. As always, this episode is brought to you by our Not a Small Council, our Hand of the King Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshoe of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the King's Guard Mark M, Sir Keith J, Master Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archbaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscombe, Scarlet the Other Robeman, and Mistress Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilt Lion, War of the West, Harold the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bainfort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym that was promised, Lord Jacob's Sister, to the Head of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Day, and Prince Rigor Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Warren the East, Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sosadelica, Sugatet's Dent, the Trog Delight Warrior, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's Faberstein, Herald of Sharon, Ambassador of Chromatica, Exalter of Black Lives, Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander of the ADs and the Genlums and the Nauticast, Non-Binary, Not an Army. Holdover, the way for Tewell, Lieutenant Glenn and Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress Fart, the Vorwerk, the Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the first draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devity, the Great Game of Thrones, Portions of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kings, Butter Paints, Makeup Drawings, and the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kim, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Pioneer of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Grave Rob Stark, the Cataver King, and Horror of Heron Hall. Hold up the Holder of Cups, Sir Tim, the Knight who is guided by voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur, and Prince Rigor Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Part 2. Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan, Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Squire Matt as future Matt as the one who brings balance to the kingdoms, 
Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring noble author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Warness of the South, and patron of free wheeling bisexuals. Lady Jamisa She, who suggests the coconuts migrate. Lord Christoph of Arendelle, official ice master deliverer, the valiant pungent reindeer king, keeper of feisty pants, and prince consort to his ginger sweet love, Queen Anna. Lord Sir Septon Brothers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice, War of the Kingswood, and Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms. Lord Anonymous II, Lord Tyler, the prince that promises to wait patiently for the winds of winter. Lord D.B., Sister Winter, hopeful, romantic, and unrepentant shipper. Lord Monsef, the severed head of a Targaryen prince riding on the council walls. Sir Small Paul, guardian of the Stonehaven, defender of Donatar Castle. James of House King, Lord of the Forest City, Admiral of the Cuyahoga, and Warren of the Western Reserve. And Lord Timothy Marshall, Master of Roads and Bridges. Thank you to all of our Not a Small counselors. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the reductive novels, histories, interviews, the Winsomers sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from James of House Keen, Lord of the Forest City, Admiral of the Cuyahoga, and Warden of the Western Reserve, a small council patron. And he asks, We all know Martin created Davos Seaworth as a way to give us a POV in Stannis' camp without giving us a Stannis POV. I suspect Martin created Ario Hota for the same purpose, except for Duran Martell. I think it's interesting that Martin has only has two non-Westerosi POV characters, Ario Hota and Melisandre. Do you think Hota was made to provide both a non-Westerosi perspective and a POV on Duran Martell, or is there some other reason why we have Ario instead of Duran himself? Perhaps Duran knows something Martin doesn't want the audience to know yet? So what do you think of that, Jeff? What's going on with Ario Hota as a POV? I think the main reason why Ario Ahota is a point of view character in a feast, starting in A Feast for Crows is that George didn't want to let on Doran Martell's plan that we see at the end of A Feast for Crows, namely his vengeance, justice, fire, and blood, the famous words that close out the Dornish arc in, in Feast. It is, of course, interesting that Ario Ahota then returns in A Dance with Dragons as a point of view, and George has said that Ario Ahota will return again in The Winds of Winter as a point of view character. It's Kind of a, I don't know if it's a mystery necessarily why Ario Hota continues on past the point where he's essentially the camera that rises. People have talked to about him being the camera to Doran Martell's activities and actions. But I do think there are things that Ario Hota is supposed to observe that would not be seen by another point of view. I do think that Ario Hota will go to Starfall at some point in the story, potentially encounter the, uh, Try to we'll encounter Dawn. We'll likely see um, Gerald Dane slash Darkstar take Dawn and do something with it or, or, or whatnot. So I, I think that's why Ario Hota became a point of view and why he's going to continue forward as a point of view. Again, Ario Hota's chapter in A Dance with Dragons is just a phenomenal chapter in many, many ways. But it just kind of stopped to serve the function of simply showcasing Dorn Martell. I don't necessarily believe that there are further major plot reveals to come from Doran Martell, but of course, George might have some in, in store for him. Why do you think that we have Ario as a point of view instead of Doran Martell, sir? Agreed that we need a POV in the area who doesn't know everything the way Duran does. That would give away his conspiracies too easily, in the same way that Varus and Littlefinger can't be POV characters because they know too much. But with Varus and Littlefinger, they're conveniently in King's Landing and then the Vale and the way George set up the plot well ahead of time. He always has important POVs with their own story arcs going on that can then also let us know what Varus and Littlefinger are up to. First with Tyrion, 
actually first with Ned and then with Tyrion and then later with Sansa. And in mm. Dorne, he didn't have that pre-existing character. So uh, people have talked about that the Dornish plot might be stronger if it was conceived around and through a single character, like namely Ariane. And I can see that, but I, I like Hoda as a POV for a couple of reasons. One is just that since he does lack the kind of uh, dramatic impulse that drives a lot of other characters, he... I don't know, it feels almost like a, a White's POV when we get an Ario Hoda chapter. Like, this is someone who has been emptied out of everything except service. And I do think that is conceptually interesting, even if it's not as emotional as something like a Jamie or a Theon POV. And now that, yeah, now that the, that Duran's main secret is kind of out, I do think Hota is there, yeah, to, to, uh, to give us a POV on Starfall, any business that George needs to get done. It could even just be hints at R plus L equals J that go right over Ario's head. And maybe even he doesn't realize what the purpose <laughs> of it is. But I, I think that, I think he's, he's pretty functional in that way. In the same way, you know, I think Victorian is functional in terms of bringing the Ironborn and Euron plot into, into contact <laughs> with Danny. Um, so I, I don't, I don't think there's a big emotional revelation coming for Hota, but it's, it's more of a almost kind of Zen approach to things. Like I love his line to Ariane in Feast that someone told on her plan because someone always tells. And that to him, it doesn't really matter who the traitor was. It's just this kind of perspective he has, this kind of unique, detached perspective as someone who's just watching uh, can only have. So I do, I do think it's, he's an interesting window onto events. And I think if you're conceiving a character who's mostly just that, I think George did uh, about as good a job as he could. So thank you to James for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we must answer here on the Nauticast podcast. We invite you to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can also get show notes, merch, access to the Nauta Slack, and shout outs at the start and end of every episode, along with our bonus episodes, like our upcoming review of our favorite and least favorite things that we watched or read in 2021. That's starting to roll out for patrons now, and it'll be up for all of our $5 and above patrons by the time of a general release of this episode. Yeah, that episode was a lot of fun to, to do. You gave me lots of stuff to to watch uh, that I didn't get a, get around to for a, in 2021. And, and you know, there, there's lots of cool stuff we could talk about for what we're excited for for 2022, maybe in a future episode, as I was, I was thinking about. But all of that aside, we are continuing to inch closer to achieving our goal of 950 total patrons. When we get to 950 total patrons, as you all should be well familiar with by this point, we'll start an analysis of the best wins the winner sample chapter. In my opinion, that is Theon's The Wind's Winter Sample chapter. And as of the recording of this, of this episode, we have 923 total patrons and are a mere 27 patrons shy of achieving our goal. Yes, we are inching ever so slowly, but forward, always forward, never backwards, except for at the start of the month. But that's something different. If you like what you hear on a regular episodes, want to listen to our massive library of bonus episodes, because yes, it is a massive bonus library. So many hundreds of hours of content you can listen to outside of our regular stream and also help us achieve our goals and dreams. Consider becoming a patron today by going to patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F and signing up at any level you feel comfortable with. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Daenerys Targaryen, she decided that Illyrio Mopatis could wait. She needed to come with an army first. Let's find out about that army and the hellscape that produces them in this synopsis of A Storm of Swords, Daenerys 2, Part 1. In the center of the Plaza of Pride stood a red brick fountain whose water smelled of brimstone. In the center of the fountain, a monstrous harpy made of hammered bronze. 
20 feet tall, she reared. She had a woman's face with gilded hair, ivory eyes, and pointed ivory teeth. Water gushed yellow from her heavy breasts, but in place of arms, she had the wings of a bat or a dragon. Her legs were the legs of an eagle, and behind she wore a scorpion's curled and venomous tail. I have the strangest feeling of being in a desert gothic hell for some weird reason. Daenerys knows the statue is the Harpy of Gis. Old Gis was once an empire that fell 5,000 years before under the onslaught of the Valyrian Empire, who destroyed the empire so badly that the, that the Gascari language was mostly forgotten. So the people spoke a bastardized version of High Valyrian. That didn't mean that the symbols of Old Gis were gone, though. The harpy of Old Gis had a thunderbolt in its claws, and this harpy had chains. This is Astapor. Tell the Westerosi whore to lower her eyes, the slaver Krasny's monaclis complained to the slave girl who spoke for him. I deal in meat, not metal. The bronze is not for sale. Tell her to look at the soldiers. Even the dim purple eyes of a sunset savage can see how magnificent my creatures are, surely. Krasny's speaks highly in a Giscaric route, and Danny understands him, even if she pretends that she doesn't. Thus, a slave girl from Nath translates. She asks if the Unsullied are magnificent. Well, they might be okay, Danny replies, but she needs to know about their training. The slave girl translates this to Krasnys as Danny trying to talk the price down. In response, Krasnys asks the slave girl if the Westerosi are so ignorant. Everyone knows about the Unsullied, who masters spear, shield, and, so and short sword. But Krasnys wants these questions to end. It's fucking hot out here. Danny agrees with Krasnys on it being hot as the sun bakes the plaza and the slave girls fan Danny and Krasnys. But there was something weird about the Unsullied. If the Unsullied felt the heat, they gave no hint of it. They could have been made of bricks themselves the way they stand there. A thousand had been marched out of the barracks for her inspection, drawn up in ten ranks of one hundred before the fountain and its great bronze harpy. They stood stiffly at attention, their stony eyes fixed straight ahead. They wore not but white linen clouts knotted about their loins, and conical bronze helms topped with a sharpened spike a foot tall. Krasis had commanded them to lay down their spears and shields and doff their sword belts and quilted tunics so the Queen of Westeros might better inspect the lean hardness of their bodies. They are chosen young for size and speed and strength, the slave told her. They begin their training at five. Every day they train from dawn to dusk until they have mastered the short sword, the shield, and the three spears. This training is most rigorous, your grace. Only one boy in three survives it. This is well known. Among the Unsullied, it is said that on the day they win their spike capped, the worst is done with. For no duty that will ever fall to them could be as hard as their training. That's, um... Something, shall we say. Krasnys then tells Danny that the Unsullied before her have been standing immobile for a day and a night with no food or water. They will do their duty until they fucking die. That's courage, according to Krasnys. Um, no, that's madness per bear. I mean, Arston. Arston. He taps his staff hard against the bricks, signaling his anger. He didn't want to be here, had advised her not to buy a slave army or even visit Astapor. Danny brought him so that she would have opposing counsel for both Arston and Jorah, who wanted to purchase the Unsullied. She left her dragons back in the ships in order to protect them from would-be dragon slayers. When Krasis is informed of what the, quote, smelly old man said, which I love, he informs them that the Unsullied standing day and night without food and water is discipline. It's obedience. Sheep are obedient, said Arston when the words have been translated. He had some Valyrian as well, though not so much as Danny, but like her, he was feigning ignorance. Krasis Monoclus showed his big white teeth when that was rendered back to him. A word from me and these sheep would spill his stinking old bowels on the bricks, he said. But do not say that. Tell them that these creatures are more dogs than sheep. They eat dogs or horses in these seven kingdoms. 
They they prefer pigs and cows to worship beef. <laughs> Food for unwashed savages. Danny ignores these words and, prote- and proceeds to inspect the line of slave soldiers, noticing that there were Dothraki, Lazarine, Free City's men, Carthine, Summer Islanders, others she doesn't know, and even Giscari in their ranks. The Giscari sell their own. They were tall and short, between the ages of 14 and 20, but they weren't men, per se. They were a unit, and they were, of course, eunuchs. Danny asks why the Unsullied were castrated as men with dicks are stronger, etc., etc. Well, according to Crasties, they were cut to make them absolutely obedient, loyal, and fearless. Barrison says that all men fear death, but Crasties insults Barrison and Giscari and then tells the girl to say that the Unsullied are not men. Death and maiming mean nothing to them either. To demonstrate this, he whips an Unsullied across the cheek and asks if he wants another lashing. But before this can happen, Danny says that she's seen how strong the Unsullied are and how they suffer pain bravely. Crassie's chuckle when he heard her words in Valyrian. Tell this ignorant whore of, of a Westerner that courage has nothing to do with it. The good master says that that was not courage, your grace. Tell her to open those sluts' eyes of hers. He begs you to attend this carefully, your grace. Crassie's moves to the next eunuch in line and demands his sword. The unsullied soldier kneels offers and offers his sword. Crassie's commands him to stand and then cuts from his belly up to his ribs and then saws the blade back and forth across the nipple. In horror, understandable horror, Danny demands to know what Krasis is doing. Krasis tells her to shut up. Men don't need nipples. Eunuchs definitely don't need nipples. And then the nipple hangs from a thread of skin and Krasis slashes and sends the flesh to the ground. Krasis turned back to Danny. They feel no pain, you see. How can that be? She demanded through the scribe. The reason is the wine of courage, a not so much wine as more of, as much as a potion made of nightshade, blood fly, larva, black lotus root, and other secret ingredients. The Unsullied drink it with every meal, and it makes them fearless. It makes them feel less fear, less pain. So the Unsullied can never be tortured or give up information. As for the castration, Crassus has more amazing information to convey about this procedure. And Yunkai and Marine eunuchs are often eunuchs are often made by removing a boy's testicles but leaving the penis. Such a creature is infertile, yet often still capable of erection. Only trouble can come of this. We remove the penis as well, leaving nothing. The Insulator are the purest creatures on earth. He gave Danny and Arson another of his broad white smiles. I have heard in the Sunset Kingdoms men take solemn vows to keep chaste and father no children, but live only for their duty. Is it not so? It is, Arson said when the question was put. There are many such orders. The masters of the citadel, the septons and septons who serve the seven, the silent sisters of the dead, the king's guard, and the night's watch. Poor things, growled the slaver after the translation. Men were not made to live thus. Their days are a torment of temptation. Any fool must see, and no doubt most succumb to their baser selves. Not so are unsullied. They are wed to their swords in a way that your sworn brothers can hope, cannot hope to match. No woman can ever tempt them, nor any man. Arston says that there are other means of temptation, but Krasi subjects, saying that the Unsullied have no interest outside of duty. They don't, they don't even have names, dude. They own nothing outside of their short swords. To demonstrate this, Krasi turns to an Unsullied and asks his name. Red Flea today, Black Rat yesterday, Brown Flea the day before, and he isn't really sure what his name was four days ago. They have discs that are tossed to a pile, and a name is chosen at random each day, called from that 
Cold from that pile of discs. Barry, who is totally not Barristan, says that that is madness to have to remember a new name every day. But Krazy says that's how they maintain their discipline. If they can't do that, they're cold in training. And there are other requirements too. Those who cannot are cold in training along with those who cannot run all day in a full pack, scale a mountain in the black of night, walk across a bed of coals, or slay an infant. Danny's mouth was surely twisted at that. Did he see... Or is he blind as well as cruel? She turned away quickly, trying to keep her face a mask until she heard the translation. Only then did she allow herself to say, Whose infants do they slay? To win a spike cap, but Ansali must go to the slave marts with a silver mark, find some wailing newborn and kill it before its mother's eyes. In this way, we make certain that there is no weakness left in them. Shocked, correctly again, Danny asked if she heard correctly. She did, but the coin is not for the mother. It's for the child's mother's owner. The unsullied cannot steal. But then there's this other killing they have to do. They're given a puppy when they're castrated. And at the end of the year, they have to strangle it. And if they can't do that, they're killed and fed to the dogs as a lesson. Arson Whitebeard tapped the end of his staff on the bricks as he listened to that. Tap, tap, tap. Slow and steady. Tap, tap, tap. Danny turned to him, his eyes away, as if he could not bear to look at Krasis any longer. The good master has said these eunuchs cannot be tempted with coin or flesh, Danny told the girl. But if some enemy of mine should offer them freedom for betraying me, they would kill him out of hand and bring her his head. Tell her that, the slaver answered. Other slaves may steal and hoard up silver in hopes of buying freedom, but Unsully would not take it that if the little mare offered as a gift. They have no life outside of duty. They are soldiers. And that is all. Danny says, yeah, she does need soldiers. How many does she need? Krasis asks. How many does Aspor have for sale? 8,000 are available for now. They sell them by the thousand or the hundred. They used to sell them by the ten, but that was an unsound investment as the unsullied intermingled with other slavers and grew out of their soldierly habits. And sure, Danny could get slave soldiers from Yankai and Marine, but they were not quality soldiers like the unsullied. Tell her they are like Valyrian steel, folded over and over and hammered for years on end, until they are stronger, more resilient than any metal on earth. As for the officers, those in charge of them, Danny must appoint officers over the Unsullied. And the Unsullied comes sold with sword, shield, spear, sandals, quilted tunic, and spiked caps. Any other armor must be provided by the owner. Danny can't think of any more questions, so she asks Arson what she should do. Tell them no, he says. Danny asks why, knowing that Krasis will get that translated later on. My queen, says Arson, there have been no slaves in the same kingdoms for thousands of years. The old gods and the new hold slavery alike to be an abomination. Evil. If you should land in Westeros at the head of a slave army, many good men will oppose you for no other reason than that. You will do great harm to your cause and to the honor of your house. Yet I must have some army, Danny said. The boy Joffrey will not give me the Iron Throne for asking politely. When the day comes when you raise your banners, half of Westeros will be with you, Whitebeard promised. Your brother Rhaegar is still remembered with great love. And my father, Danny asked. Um, well, um, Ares is definitely remembered. He made Westeros peaceful, kind of. But maybe Danny should just go to Illyria and hang out for a while to let her dragons grow while sending secret messages across the narrow sea to grab up all their lords. You mean loyal lords like the ones who abandoned Ares for Robert, Danny counters? Yeah, but those lords may want a return of the dragons oh they may she turns back to crises and the slave girl and says she needs to consider the slaver shrugged tell her to consider quickly there are many other buyers only three days passed i showed these same unsullied to a corsair king who hopes to buy them all the corsair only wanted a hundred your worship danny heard the slave girl say he poked her with the end of his whip 
Corsairs are all liars. He'll buy them all. Tell her that girl. Danny knew she would take more than a hundred if she took any at all. Remind your good master of who I am. Remind him that I am Daenerys Stormborn, mother of dragons, the unburnt, true-born queen of the seven kingdoms of Westeros. My blood is the blood of Aegon the Conqueror and of old Valyria before him. But Danny's words don't really matter to Krasnys. Old Gis ruled a massive empire when Valyrians were still fucking sheep, according to Krasnys. They are the sons of the harpy. Anyways, Krasnys is tired and bored of trying to convince and bribe Danny. He'd be happy to serve as a guide to Astapur for Danny or to have sex with her. He'll feed her dog brains, a stew of octopus, and an unborn puppy. Tell tell her how pretty the pyramids are at night, the sliver growled. Tell her I will lick honey off her breasts or allow her to lick honey off mine if she prefers. Astapor is most beautiful at dusk, your grace, said the slave girl. The good masters light silk lanterns on every terrace, so all the pyramids glow with colored lights. Pleasure barges ply the worm, playing soft music and calling at the little islands for food and wine and other delights. Ask her if she wishes to view our fighting pits, Krasis added. Dakor's pit had a fine folly schedule for the evening. A bear and three small boys. One boy will be rolled in honey, one in blood, and one in rotting fish. And she may wager on which the bear will eat first. Tap, 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 Danny heard. Arston Whitebeard's face was still, but his stiff, but his staff beat out the rage. But the staff beat out his rage. Tap, tap, tap. She made herself smile. I have my own bear on Balerion, she told the translator, and he may well eat me if I do not return to him. It's really hard not to quote so much of this part of the chapter because the dialogue is so phenomenal and so gonzo. Anyways, Krasis engages in some casual massage about how Jorah will be the one making the decisions instead of Danny, and Danny says she needs to head out to think about everything that she's learned. She gave her arm to Arson Whitebeard to lead her back across the plaza to her litter. Ago and Jogo fell into either side of them, walking with bow with a bow-legged swagger, all the horse swords affected, when forced to dismount and stride the earth like common mortals. And that is the synopsis of A Storm of Swords, Daenerys 2, Part 1. Well, this is quite the chapter in many, many ways. And it's all setting the foundation for everything that's coming for Daenerys story, for Daenerys Targaryen's story, for both the remainder of Daenerys 2 and 3, all of A Storm of Swords, but really for all of the published books in A Song of Ice and Fire so far. What did you think, sir? A Storm of Swords isn't much for new settings. Most of the book focuses on deepening the drama in places we've already been. Your King's Landing, your Castle Black, Dragonstone, Harrenhal, River Run, the twins, of course, when we get to the Red Wedding. The major exception is Slaver's Bay, a location George teased in book one and now unveils in book three. So as you were saying, it can basically take over the story in book five. <laughs> but before it becomes the Miranese not infamously full of multiple POVs and subplots, and before real-world events changed its meaning for the author and audience alike, Slaver's Bay is a hellish gauntlet for Daenerys Targaryen specifically. One that throws the possibilities and pitfalls of her overall rise to power into sharp relief. In Karth, she was more or less drifting. That changes now, as she's forced to choose how she will interact with the world around her, what she will create, and what she will leave behind. She starts making those big decisions in her next chapter, and then they start coming one after another in a dizzying rise to power. This chapter, like her first one in the book, is more about setting the stage, and it does so with hideous precision. This is a different kind of horror than Sam's opening chapter, which was about pure chaos, Sam's POV breaking down in the face of the undead. This chapter explores a distinct structure, the infernal machine of Astapor, a temple to human misery. In order to ground what Danny does next, George has to chill you to the bone while also setting your heart on fire. And he does both. 
Yeah, it really feels like George is priming the reader to want Tinny to burn this fucking city to the ground. Astapor is horror, like you said, but it's less the cold, uncaring, supernatural horror seen north of the wall. It's a hot, sticky horror where people subject each other to inhuman practices. Its body horror is brought about by torture. Its psychological horror of the depths that humans will go when their entire society is addicted to misery. Slaver's Bay is truly the worst place on Planetos. Given what we find later about Yunkai and Marine in Storm and Dance chapters, it's hard to argue that Asper might be the worst city in this entire goddamn region. We really want this city to burn. But should we? We'll unpack all that, especially in the context of Daenerys 3. But for now, let's zero in on the city of Asport itself in the context of the rest of Slaver's Bay and its own internal identity and its reputation. Dishonorable, disreputable, disreputation. Is there a disreputation word? I don't know. But it's it disreputable. We're yes, inventing it right here. Each city in Slaver's Bay is color-coded to represent its place in Danny's story. Yunkai is yellow a color associated with fear and cowardice, perfect for the city of craven slavers who do nothing but hire sellswords and then manage them so poorly that most of the sellswords flip sides. Marine is made of many colors, a metaphor for the political complexity of that city and the number of factions and journeys caught up in it, like I was saying. But Danny begins in Astapor, and Astapor is red. As Barristan says, bricks and blood built Astapor, and bricks and blood her people. The bricks of Astapor are red with the blood of the slaves who make them. Astapor is built on blood, stained and sustained by it, like the red keep grown to the size of an entire city. And George establishes the tone of this place right away, opening sentence of the chapter. In the center of the plaza of pride stood a red brick fountain, whose waters smelled of brimstone. Brimstone. The smell of brimstone is not exactly a subtle <laughs> cue. Astapor is hell, a fiery pit full of obscene torments. As you were saying, it's the worst place in the world, a locus of punishment and suffering so intense that it seems to transcend reality, warp it around the edges. Danny's journey in Slaver's Bay begins with her staring down the symbol of it all, the harpy, bronze and baleful, rearing above her with eyes and fangs of ivory, the legs of an eagle, the poisonous tail of a scorpion, and wings like a bat, or a dragon, George writes, making the harpy Danny's twisted mirror image. Hmm. Even after Danny sacks Astapor, wipes out the master class here, she can't escape the harpy. It returns to dominate her story in a dance with dragons, as the sons of the harpy strike her freemen from the shadows, leaving the harpy behind, painted in blood. The harpy exemplifies the class of masters that dominate Slaver's Bay. It's how they see themselves, and it's how they want their slaves to see them. The harpy is a symbol inherited from Old Geese, an empire that has been dead and gone for millennia. It was wiped out by the Valyrians, Danny's own ancestors. And George describes this with more hellish imagery, emphasizing that this has always been the history of empires. Old Geese had fallen 5,000 years ago, if she remembered true. Its legions shattered by the might of young Valyria, its brick walls pulled down, its streets and buildings turned to ash and cinder by dragon flame, its very fields sown with salt, sulfur, and skulls. The Valyrians salted the earth. They not only conquered the people, they wiped out the gods. A total metaphysical defeat. Absolute erasure. So the masters of Astapor only pretend to be descended directly from Old Geese. In the same way the Old Way Ironborn pretend that the Iron Islands have maintained their precious cultural and ethnic purity for millennia. As Krasnes says at one point, Old Geese ruled an empire when the Valyrians were still fucking sheep. 
and we are the sons of the harpy. In truth, the masters are descended, in large part, from their Valyrian conquerors, making them Danny's distant cousins. They even speak High Valyrian, with a Giscari twist, to be sure, but it's still the language of their conquest. They keep the symbol of Old Geese, but with a twist. The Harpy of Geese had a thunderbolt in its claws, representing divine power a la the Greeks. The Harpy of Astapor carries something more mundane, yet arguably even more terrifying. Chains, like the chains the masters lock their slaves into. And this is George showing us how culture and history intertwine, the give-and-take process by which people define themselves. It's always make-believe. You're always choosing bits and pieces as you wish. Your first time through this chapter, you're probably focused on the sheer awfulness of the atrocities embedded into Astapor on a systemic level. On reread, though, these cultural complexities stand out. They become more important because you know Danny is going to have to engage with that complexity to rule in Slaver's Bay. I think you're right that there is a complexity there. And I think George does this by giving something of a detailed historical background of Slaver's Bay and Astapor in particular. Historically, the influences that George draws from with Slaver's Bay are varied, but not precisely geographically wide, because the Greek Empire of Gis, brought down by Valyria, reads as a play on the Greek dominion of the Mediterranean and the Macedonian Empire, specifically brought down by the Roman Empire, or rather by the Roman Republic that was in the process of becoming the Roman Empire. We'll later learn that there were five Giscari Wars fought between Valyria and the Empire of Gis, a play on the four Macedonian Wars that brought the Greek states under Roman dominion. But the salting of the earth invokes the conclusion to the siege of Carthage at the end of the Third Punic War. Of course, salting the earth in Carthage as part of the city's total devastation was a 19th century romantic invention, though salting of the earth in cities did occur, albeit not in Carthage. It was something that happened in Asia Minor, among the Hittites, and other Near East peoples. Um, and Carthage itself ended up rising up as a new Roman city after it was sacking as a, as a Roman city. But George loves his popular Romantic versions of history rather than the academic, potentially truer versions of history. One last thing about the history piece of Slaver's Bay. I think we're seeing a real contrast with what we saw in Carth, where George didn't seem that interested in the society of Carth. Here, there's a sense of real history behind the descendants of the Giscari, and I think ultimately that vile practice of slavery that we see here, and especially the vile way that it's practiced, is sourced in its history. How a whole people, the Giscari, were subjugated by the Valyrians, taught to create a culture of servitude and violence, and thus we see the result in front of Daenerys and the reader. I think that Roman comparison is on point, even for those of us not as, as versed in the history as you are. You can tell that the Tokar has an influence, and just the, the pillars and columns, or the, the arena, which we get more to in A Dance with Dragons, and how that's descended from the popular perception of the Roman Colosseum. It's definitely a, a strong influence George is drawing from. And you can see that cultural give-and-take process at work right away in this chapter, in terms of how George handles the question of language. The masters are speaking High Valyrian, which they assume Danny doesn't understand. Their translator, Missandei, speaks to Danny in the common tongue. But Danny understands everything being said, and so do we. This is some really smart writing, feeding you world building and character information while also building tension, both dramatically and even comedically. You can imagine a much more pedestrian version of this scene, in which everyone is speaking plainly to each other, and this way is so much richer. It shows us the master's worldview. They're so arrogant that they can't imagine the, quote, Westerosi horror could possibly speak their tongue. Yet, as I said, that's the language of the Valyrian conquerors, her ancestors. With enough time, High Valyrian has become a shadow on the wall for these men, an image of power and wealth they see themselves in. 
It's been divorced from its origins, just like the image of the harpy. And so the master's arrogance backfires, leading them into ignorance. Danny knows them better than they know her. And so her cultural knowledge is translated into political advantage. George is following up on Danny's attempts to assimilate into the Dothraki and the Carthine. This is a major motif of her story, probably leading to her attempt to assimilate into Westeros. For me, the Giscari are the most interesting example of this pattern so far, because of how Danny is both kin and stranger to them. Is she Westerosi, or is she Valyrian? Which is her motherland? Which is her mother tongue? She grew up in neither, truly, but in the free cities. Individuals can cross these borders. Missandei speaks the common tongue fluently, despite never having traveled to Westeros. So you know that part of the slave economy at work here involves tutors who train the translators, and the tutors have to come from somewhere too. <laughs> In Slaver's Bay, everything from economics to linguistics is intertwined to support the system. The slavers draw Danny's attention away from the harpy, one symbol of their power, to another, the unsullied. The monstrosity of the harpy, the same dehumanization that leads to the creation of the unsullied, leads the slavers to condescend to Danny. So I think you're right that George is very interested in how this society works, because you can see him embedding it, not just in kind of the raw material facts of power, but also even in how people talk to each other. Yeah, and that language is really interesting because it's a common form of communication, but George uses the fact that Danny knows High Valyrian as, a, as an interesting way to tell a story, but also comes to really understand the personality of of this culture in Astapor in a way that, again, you were saying really well wouldn't be communicated if it was simply Krasnys and Daenerys speaking back and forth. And, and I love that symbol that we see there with the harpy, with the, with the chain in its claws, because the harpy speaks to that monstrous, unnatural union that mm -hmm. I was talking about before, symbolizing how the Kaskari culture is an amalgamated of, is, a, of a, is an amalgamation of its history as both the conqueror and enslaver. As we find out in later passages in Storm and in the World of Ice and Fire, the end of the fifth Giscari War resulted in the entire population of what is now known as Slaver's Bay being deported and becoming slaves. And as a result, I think there's that violence and slavery aspect that was the violence was always there in Giscari culture. I'll talk about a little bit later. But the slavery aspect was really introduced uh, by, by the Valyrians. And so you have the intermingling of cultures as symbolized really, really strongly by the harpy itself. And because Danny understands High Valyrian, and because George translates it for us, both her and the reader can peek beneath the surface of diplomacy and see the masters for who they really are, what they're really saying among each other. They're using crude words and xenophobia to belittle Danny's intelligence. This accomplishes several goals at once. It makes us hate the masters, even more than we would have if we'd only heard the polite translation of their words. In particular, George leads us to fucking despise Krasnys Monaklaus, one of the most odious characters in a story hardly lacking for them. He's a brutal <laughs> overseer and a sneering sexist. By contrast, we're led to sympathize with Missandei even more than we would have otherwise. Now we, and Danny, see how hard her job is. She has to do more than translate. She has to shape her master's words into polite diplomacy, and also interpret the true meaning of Danny's words for him. If she doesn't, she'll suffer for the deal falling apart, even though Krasnus is the one being obnoxious. And that's the system in a nutshell. It's also a good reminder that that there's uh, translation is always an approximation and there's there's hmm. no easy like machine-like way to go from one language to another. It always depends how you interpret the words and, and how you pass them on to the next person down the line. So when Krasnus calls Danny a slut or talks at length about what it would be like to fuck her, Missandei has to come up with a plausible <laughs> diplomatic nicety to, stay in, to say instead. And she has to do it in the common tongue. And she has to do it as fast as possible without giving away what she's doing. 
So we see how intelligent and hardworking she is, and how lazy and uncaring Krasnus is. Now obviously, slavery is an atrocity no matter the traits of the individuals involved, but I think George is trying to contrast the master's self-indulgence with the discipline enforced upon their slaves. The author emphasizes the uncomfortable heat of Astapor, shimmering waves of it in the air, not just to add to the hellish atmosphere, but to demonstrate what that discipline has made of the unsullied. They just stand there, row on row, baking in the hot sun like the bricks that make up the city, as Danny thinks. There's no shade like the masters get. This isn't just cruelty, though it is that. It's a product showcase, as far as the masters are concerned. The fact that the unsullied can bear the heat without flinching is an object lesson in their discipline. It's like proof of concept. What makes the unsullied so effective, what makes them an attractive purchase in the flesh markets of Slaver's Bay, is that they have been stripped of their humanity, representing the inhumanity of this system. They're chosen young, taken from their families. Their training is so intense that it kills two out of every three. That's what you got to imagine when you're looking at the unsullied. Twice this number died in the process. (laughs) Those who survive are experts with sword and spear and shield. They can carry a full pack all day, scale a mountain in the dead of night, and walk across a bed of coals. Yeah, part of this reminds me of the selection of U.S. Special Forces soldiers who undergo an extraordinarily rigorous, an extraordinarily rigorous training program designed to weed out those who don't possess the physical and mental fortitude for the job. Now, in my own career, I spent a limited amount of time over 15 years ago at this point, participating in one phase of the Special Forces Green Beret Qualification Course, otherwise known as the Q Course, in which candidates parachuted in at night, rock marched without sleep through eight miles of dense North Carolinian terrain, and then linked up with us. I played the role of a gorilla attempting to liberate my homeland. Very American. And then without sleep, we immediately rolled into missions, testing their endurance, strength, and mental stamina. These guys hadn't slept for 48, sometimes 72 hours. As the Ballad of the Green Berets from that great, actually terribly shitty movie goes, 100 men will test today, but only three win the Green Beret. However, a lot of this training the Unsullied undergo, while there are hallmarks there to rigorous training programs in modern militaries, I do think that George is again basing this off a more ancient history, mostly those of ancient Greece, specifically the Spartans. The Spartan training system, part of one of the Spartan training systems was known as the Cryptia or the hidden slash secret knowledge. It may have been part of the Spartan secret police, but what's known most from this is how rigorous the training was. The men put into this regimen had to survive without shoes, go without food or water for periods of time, had to steal to survive, etc., etc. Now, the thing about all of this when it comes to the historicity of it is that it's not entirely certain what went into the Cryptia or the Agogi, which we'll talk about later on, as accounts come from non-Spartan Greeks like Aristotle, Plato, like Aristotle or Plato, or Romans like Plutarch. However, George probably had this historical example in mind when he constructed the Unsullied, choosing yet again in a very George style to embrace the story over the vagaries of real history. And part of that interest, I think, is that he's extending the discipline beyond the physical to the mental and emotional, trying to imagine how it would be to be an individual in this kind of system. Each unsullied must take a silver coin to the slave market and kill a baby in its mother's arms. Hard to imagine anything worse than that. Danny assumes at first that the coin is for the mother and is outraged. You're trying to just pay off her love and grief? But no, it's even worse than that. The coin is for the baby's master, because the masters consider that baby to be property not a person. Killing the baby is stealing from his master, and the unsullied are not permitted to steal. Killing the baby while its mother watches? That's fine. That's the status quo. Her pain is just part of the process. But depriving the masters of money? You can't have that. That's what would challenge the system. 
It reminds me of Chiswick's story about gang rape in the Riverlands back in Arya's Clash of Kings chapters. It establishes not only that these hideous actions occur, but that they're normal, part of the status quo. Gregor paid for rape and murder and then asked for his change back. In both cases, the bitter punchline is about the dehumanization that goes with treating people like property. Humans become currency. Nothing but a tool to gain advantage. Nothing but raw material for somebody else. Unless we think that this is just George dipping into the dark fantasy well and imagination to draw inspiration for this part of A Storm of Swords, let's talk a little bit more about the Spartan traditions and specifically about the part of how a specific part of how a specific Spartan ritual is seemingly reminiscent of what we see here in with the Unsullied. After graduation from the Agogi or the three-phase Spartan training program, the Spartan state would declare war, an annual war even, against the helots or slaves serving the Spartans. The young men who graduate from this phase of training would then go out into the countryside and kill helots, especially those who look strong. They also struck against large communities of helots. Scholars speculate that the autumn killing season was likely intended to keep the helot population down and and prevent slave rebellions. What's left unstated here in Daenerys 2 is that I think there is a likely reason why the Unsullied do this and why the Astapori masters, good masters, encourage this to happen. It's to maintain population control over the large masses of slaves operating mm-hmm. in Slaver's Bay, to prevent overpopulation and rebellion. Like, God forbid, these people would, raid, would rise up against people who are oppressing them as shittily as they are. And as we'll likely see in The Winds of Winter, I think there is a real threat of that occurring. As we see in Volantis, when four-fifths of the population are made of slaves, that means that slave rebellion is very likely to occur in Volantis when Daenerys Targaryen shows up with her armory of formerly ex-slaves, now unsullied, on the campaign trail. I think you definitely hit on something there that this is about psychological control as well as a direct physical control. On the day a new unsullied boy is castrated, he's given a puppy, a consolation prize, a distraction from the pain. Imagine how much you would come to love that little dog who loves you when no one else does. And now imagine finishing your training and being ordered to strangle that puppy. What's left of your heart breaks. You become part of the machine that took everything from you, that does not even permit you a name, but forces you to memorize a new one every day. You are a flea, then a worm, then a rat. You are vermin. You're nothing. And you are complicit in your own suffering because you're the one who killed the baby and you're the one who strangled the dog. It makes a good lesson, as Krasnus says. It makes me think about Tywin promising to teach Joffrey a sharp lesson. If you can't bring yourself to do it, you're killed and fed to the remaining dogs. Nothing goes to waste. This is cruelty as a science, an industry, extending categorically beyond the depravity of an individual sadist like Ramsay. This is a self-sustaining loop of suffering that swallows up everything in its path, reducing the rainbow of life to blood red. As she walks the ranks of the Unsullied, Danny sees that they come from all over. There's Dothraki and Lazarine, Carthine and Summer Islanders, even Gascari with the same hair and skin color as Krasnas himself. All of Essos takes part in this, and all that diverse humanity is melted down and forged into something else. As Danny thinks, their eyes have different colors, different shapes, but they all look the same, empty inside. It's so awful that Danny flinches once, almost giving the game away. And we're right there with her, flinching away from the horror of it all. But she has to keep her lord's face on. She has to keep pretending that this is all business as usual, because for an entire continent, It is. Astapor is hell because it's profitable. There's a market for soldiers who will stand and fight no matter what. 
Supply and demand, Bill Astapor. Is it so different from how the others operate? Emptying out their zombie slaves, reducing them to cannon fodder? What is mind control but the ultimate discipline? Humans break, as Septon Meribold tells us. In order to create soldiers that will not break, you need to empty them of humanity. It's kind of like a melting pot in the worst possible way, uh-huh. where all races and sizes are reduced to not some sort of conglomeration of a nation, but to a unit, a military unit specifically. There's the obvious historical comparisons of the Ottoman Janissaries with the Syrian slash Egyptian Mamluks slaves who became soldiers that George stated were inspirations for the Unsullied. But the system of slavery practiced in Essos is interesting in that George has said it is not race-based, saying there is no racial component to slavery as practiced in on Essos. It is based on slavery as it existed in the ancient world. The Romans and Greeks, maybe I should do it in the George voice, the Romans and Greeks were just as willing to enslave other Greeks and Romans as they were Celts, Goths, Germans, and Africans. It's on the page. Of course, George is correct about the form of slavery practiced in classical Rome and Greece. It wasn't race-based per se. Race, as defined by a tone of skin, is a very modern conception. I think the one thing that gets me, though, that I kind of disagree with George about here is that even if the system isn't based on you know, ostensibly on race, the chattel slavery practiced here in Astapor has its hallmarks to the race-based version of slavery seen most prominently in the United States and also in Europe. We know that George R. Martin is well aware of this, as American slavery is a central feature of his 1982 novel, Vampire Novel Fever Dream, which of course we're covering for all of our monthly chapter-by-chapter Patreon episodes for all $5 and above month patrons. So in this chapter, we see whippings, maimings, markings, etc., all done to the unsullied by their slave masters. And I think this invokes the American slave system, maybe not in terms of like the skin tone of the people that this is happening to and the people practicing that type of inhumanity, but in terms of like its tone. So while the practice of slavery was based on non-race-based slavery, the the emotions that are so strong in this part of the chapter that make us flinch as modern readers, those are very solidly emotionally American. And that's my argument against George, though, for him saying this is not a slave race-based culture. I think you're you're exactly right. I think it's, it's a good reminder that uh, a lot of racial distinctions that we might take for granted were invented and were deliberately invented in order to be able to, to make this race-based slavery system take hold culturally with people. But even if this uh, this fictional world doesn't have that component, yeah, the the specific the specific practices I agree are drawn from our our understanding and our history of American slavery, and I think that's there just to, as I've been saying, just to increase the reader's rage against this this horrible system and want to hmm. see it destroyed. But also, I think to kind of bring it home to an American audience, like this isn't the other in a conceptual sense this is part of your your culture and your history and your country that danny is dealing with so this is what danny's going to do with it what would you do with it <laughs> and throughout this chapter danny's in the position of not being able to directly express her feelings about the horror show she's witnessing not only is she hiding her fluency in valyrian from the slavers but she's also trying to avoid looking weak in front of them she doesn't want to be taken advantage of as Masandai tells krasnes the westerosi the westerosi woman is pleased with them but speaks no praise to keep the price down so instead, George has Barristan poke the bear, allowing him to speak for Westeros and also at some level, the audience. Danny bought Arston Whitebeard along specifically because he bitterly opposes coming here at all. She knows that leaders need to hear from competing sources of information to get as close to the right call as possible. An example of how she is consciously trying to be better than Viserys was. Viserys was alternately uh, naive and hateful and didn't take anybody seriously except the people he probably shouldn't have. <laughs> 
Barristan undercuts the slaver's narrative about the Unsullied, which is all about how they're a tribute to martial glory, mankind perfected like Valyrian steel. As Krasnus says, they are absolutely obedient, absolutely loyal, and utterly without fear. When Krasnus brags that the Unsullied are so brave that they would starve for him out here, each one falling over and then the next one would without even flinching away, Barristan says that's not courage, that's madness. Courage, as Ned would say, is about the choice to be brave, in spite of fear. If the fear has been just steamrolled out of you, there's no way to be brave. Are the Unsullied obedient? Sure, Barristan says. So are sheep, proving he would fit in just fine on Reddit. All Krasnus can do in response <laughs> is say, no, they're not sheep, they're dogs. He concedes the point that he doesn't treat the Unsullied like fully-fledged individual human beings. He just disagrees about which animal they are. And Barristan believes only such a fully-fledged individual can achieve martial glory. In a deliberately stomach-churning sequence, Krasnus tortures his own soldiers to show off how they've been numbed to the pain. We're in body horror territory now, like Krasnus is a mad scientist who believes his experiments have improved upon humankind. Barristan believes that this is a perversion of what it means to be a warrior. Fear isn't an obstacle you remove, it's the engine of the whole process. All through the negotiations, Barristan is tapping his staff against the ground. Loud, sharp taps, like the hammering of an enraged heartbeat. He is clearly, just barely, restraining himself from beating Krasnus to death with that thing. He is heartsick and furious, and so are we. So you as a reader, I think you are supposed to project yourself into him as a vessel for moral revulsion at slavery. But... George's favorite thing is complicating our catharsis, so he's doing more with Barristan than just giving us someone to cheer for in the scene. When Krasnus talks about covering three boys with honey, blood, and rotting fish before betting on which one bears will eat first, Barristan looks away. And this sums up both Westeros' perspective on associate slavery and Barristan's own past with the Mad King's atrocities. You don't condone, you don't participate, but you also don't do anything about it. You look away and tell yourself that by looking away, you're good. That's the only option Barristan can offer Danny, and it rubs her raw because it feels like passive complicity, as Jamie argued about the Kingsguard. Barristan's perspective is rooted in the Kingsguard as a synecdoche for Westerosi values. Since Danny isn't actually familiar with Westeros, Barristan acts as a sort of tutor and emissary, telling her what Westeros will think. But in the process, he inadvertently reveals the blind spots of his worldview, the ones that have tripped him up before and probably will again. Westeros won't accept a monarch leading a slave army, he says. That's solid, practical advice. But what are Westeros' institutions like? Krasnus really goes for the gut here, saying that the Kingsguard, along with the Night's Watch and the Maesters and so on, those are the real perversions of humanity. They ask the same tremendous discipline that is asked of the Unsullied, but without any of the physical restrictions. No castration, no numbing. In Krasnus's view, that's the atrocity. Poor things, he calls the people in those institutions. They are doomed to the torment of temptation, which the Unsullied can't feel. Surely most of them break their vows anyway, so why not do as the slavers do, and just remove the possibility of that happening? As it turns out, the Unsullied are still perfectly capable of making choices, as we'll see in Danny's next chapter. And Krasnus almost kind of admits it here when he says you have to buy them in hundreds, not tens, because if you buy them in small units, they intermix with other guards, they're going to forget what they are. Aha, so that shows they you haven't destroyed their humanity, they can come back, they can be themselves. Krasnus is just making excuses for this abominable system. No doubt he learned from older merchants to make this little speech to doubtful Westerners. But one thing he says is true. The Westerosi institutions that Barristan so reveres 
are absurd in terms of their relationship with individual choice. Jamie said the same thing to Catalan. They make you take so many vows that they're bound to come into conflict, setting you up to fail. They don't relieve you of the burden of choice and consequence. They only pretend to. It's not so much that the Kingsguard and the Unsullied are equivalent in terms of the suffering involved, but that the ideal Kingsguard would choose to act like he was unsullied. The ideal is total dedication to duty. And there is something inhumane about that, as Barristan knows. Remember what Varus told Tyrion. Barristan believed that Sir Mandon Moore knew nothing but duty, yet he didn't seem to think that was actually a positive thing. <laughs> so despite presenting himself as the moral center here, Barristan is coming unmoored from his own belief systems, as he sees them carried to their full, exaggerated extent here in Slaver's Bay. Barristan also just isn't being honest with Danny about who he is and why he's here serving her, and the reason for his dishonesty prevents him from giving her accurate or helpful advice. Barristan is testing Danny to see how similar she is to her father, which means he can't tell her what her father was actually like. So when Danny correctly points out that she will need an army to take the Iron Throne from the Lannisters, Barristan has to repeat Illyrio's lie that they're, oh, they're all sewing dragon banners over there. They all want your family back. They loved Rhaegar after all. And my father, Danny asks, the actual last Targaryen king? Well, that's where Barristan, Barristan's narrative falls apart as he has to dance around the truth. So as righteous as he feels, he actually can't offer Danny this satisfying narrative that she could follow instead. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And and I think it, it is funny. We have the that line from Danny's first chapter from A Game of Thrones coming back up here again. You kind of wonder whether Lyra Mopatis was like, ah, Barristan, as you go to Daenerys, please uh-huh. let her know that they are sewing dragon banners. Remind her of that line. It would be a good line for her to remember to come back here and please have her bring her dragons too. That would be very nice. I have this boy I want her to meet. The other truth that Barrison fails to share with Daenerys here is that beyond the Kingsguard, the Septons and the Septas, there are multiple institutions of Westeros that more than a little resemble slavery and are actually slavery in practice. Arya saw firsthand how Tywin Lannister practiced warfare in the Riverlands, taking massive amounts of captives to Harrenhal and putting those that survived the march up to work. Without pay, you might say. Sort of reminds you of the Dothraki having those massive wars out on the grasslands or elsewhere in Essos and then marching the captives down to Marine, Yunkai, or Astapor and selling them for profit and then being turned into unsullied down the way in Astapor. And remember all those people who died along the way along that march? That's quite similar to the ordeal the small folk in the Riverlands face. Then there's the Ironborn practice of taking salt wives and thralls. Barristan is familiar with this practice too. Or at least he should know about it, but he has Barrison's, maybe he doesn't, because he did take part in the Greyjoy Rebellion, participating in the warfare on, I believe, Great or Old, actually participated in Old Wick. Finally, there's the whole structure of feudalism and the presence of serfdom in Westeros itself. Don't think we wouldn't get away from this note without talking about feudalism here. Tyrion and Quentin will learn in A Dance with Dragons how much of the economic machine of Essos is based around slavery and how Danny's actions create a mass union of different city-states, nations, and identities to oppose her. How much of Westeros' economy is sourced to the slave labor of the serfs? How hard do the Westerosi lords fight against Aegon V's super-moderate, very low-level reforms when their livelihoods came at stake? I think what a animates Barristan the most is semantics. The word slavery is an abomination. The idea of slave and chains, that's abhorrent. 
Yet the practice of enslaving people to the land owned by a lord, of chaining them to march up to Harrenhal, to forcibly marry or make them work the mines of the Iron Islands, that's all totally above board, according to Barristan. And that is such a Barristan thing to do, to object to a title, to object to a word when the practice continues unabated. Really, slave is just a word. What we actually see in Westeros throughout their nerve is it in practice. Ultimately, it's like the argument about whether the Unsullied are sheep or dogs between Barristan and Crassies. Yeah, it makes us feel good that Barristan is taking up the correct argument. Of course, they're sheep. Sheep are innocent. They are gentle. But Crassies' argument is that they're dogs. It makes us kind of like revolve, like feel revulsion for, for Crassies in his perspective. But the reality is it doesn't fucking matter what animal the Unsullied actually are. What matters is that the actual practice of what they're enduring is slavery and their ultimate dehumanization. So yeah, Barrison takes the correct argument, even if it doesn't mean shit in actual practice. I think that's a great point, and I think it gets at something we see throughout Danny's time in Slaver's Bay, which is once you try to start solving a problem, you realize how interconnected it is with all the other problems, and it right. starts to get dizzying and feel out of your control. So I think everybody along the spectrum of righteousness ends up making a decision at some point, ends up making the compromise where they go as far as they can to the point where they can still feel good about themselves. And I think that's what Barristan is reaching his kind of his kind of point here in this chapter. And Danny's like, well, where's where's how am I going to solve my own revulsion? How am I going to hmm. contextualize my taking part in this system? And Barristan has his own struggle with that with the Mad King. And now Danny has her own. Hmm. Great point. So shifting into a foreshadowing and groundwork, there's the, obviously the big one in this chapter is, is Danny's little language game with the masters. That's not just to kind of establish the culture here and Danny's place in it. It's going to pay off in the most dramatic way imaginable in her next chapter when she finally openly speaks Valyrian in front of the masters only to give the Dracarys order to Drogon hmm. and to take them down with their own language. I'll have more to say about that in Danny 3, but it's, it's, it's the perfect way to pay off this little uh, thing going on in this chapter. No, it is outstanding. I absolutely love when Daenerys reveals how she speaks uh, High Valyrian. And, and, and I will say, in, in the show's defense, we'll talk about this when we get to Daenerys 3, I think the show did a really good idea by having subtitles there. Mm -hmm. So you don't know that Daenerys knows High Valyrian, but Danny's does a, uh, Amelia Clark rather, does a really great job of doing the face acting that shows subtly that she does know what Crisis Monoclus is talking about, uh, even as the subtitles are there on screen there. And then, of course, we have the dramatic Drakkar's reveal, which is just a awesome moment, both in book and in show. Uh, finally, for uh, foreshadowing groundwork, the staff that Barrison holds here, and he's always tapping on the ground in anger, uh, that will be vital for this this character when he intercepts Mero Bravos in his attempt to murder Daenerys outside of Yunkai. So, of course, if you remember, Barristan, Daener Daenerys is walking around there visiting all of her her new children, and Mero Bravos has joined, um, joined the crowds there and is following Daenerys and finally finds a chance to try and kill her. And it's only because Barristan's there with his staff, uh, kind of Obi-Wan Kenobi-like, just stands there and intercepts Mero bravos and brings uh bring allows him to be like basically like beats him to the point where he can't kill daenerys and then the crowd in yunkai then rips him apart which is um just metal just 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 fucking metal just as things are often in slaver's bay yeah i love that that's an amazing scene that we'll get to in danny five that's 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 so well done in terms of uh, managing the barristan reveal but yes you know george wants you to, to remember that he's got that staff so he's, he's he's tapping it with his outrage here he doesn't get to use this on krasnos so obviously barristan's not a pov yet but i wonder if in his mind he was like <laughs> that rage against the slavers had built up and he hadn't got the chance to fight them so he was like i'm taking it all out right now on mirror of bravos maybe that's what was going through his head i could definitely see that 
So, moving into uh, theory and discussion, there is a, a little mention of a character we don't ever get to meet, but I think it's interesting in this one chapter when the masters are talking amongst themselves about how many they can, how many unsullied they can sell to Danny. They bring up this, this Corsair king who had stopped by, who had asked for a hundred unsullied. It's not clear what happened to him, where he went. So I thought it would be fun to talk about that a little bit. Now, my obvious instinct is to assume that it's Euron Greyjoy, naturally, because if you know me, you know I'm really into Euron as a character, and I like all the intricacies and mysteries behind him. But so the question I wanted to ask you is, as the keeper of the canon, as the center of the fandom, does it make sense <laughs> in terms of time and space that this would be Euron? Or is does that not really make sense, and should he be elsewhere at this point in the story? I think it makes total sense. I think that... The Corsair King is very obviously Euron Greyjoy. I mean, I don't think that George will ever confirm it uh, openly, or, or maybe he would after the, the series is finished. But I, but I think the the Corsair King is is interesting. So he just shows up randomly. This court, the mention of a Corsair King, and then bam, he's gone. We never hear about him again. But if you look at what's happening, what George is doing, I think it's it's so cool because I think what he does is that he shows the voyage of Euron Greyjoy back to the Iron Islands, and he really wants to start building this guy up because he's realized, I think, when he's writing Storm especially, and probably when he's writing Clash for that matter, that he realized who kind of the end game human villain is going to be in the story, and he's mm-hmm. Euron Greyjoy, and he wants to kind of subtly show him returning back to Westeros and back to the Iron Islands. So if we remember back in a, dance, in a, in a Clash of Kings, Daenerys Five, we have the mention uh, of the guy, Eurothon Nightwalker, who we both speculate to be, of course, Euron Greyjoy, because he is absolutely Euron Greyjoy with his glass candle and being able to see things in the flames and stuff like that through the, through the glass candle. And then the next thing we know is we have a Corsair King in Slaver's Bay, which is really interesting. Um, so, and then after that, you don't hear anything, but then you also hear about a, the, well, you hear, is it the Corsair King who's talked about who's sacking uh, Taltree's town or is it just some other character that's mentioned? Right. In, that's the other thing. That's the feast. That, that comes up later and that people have talked about might be, you know, maybe is that Salador or is that, you know, eventually you're going to get a, a Orain Waters in that area. So that's, that's still unclear. So if, if George didn't intend it to be Euron, maybe it is, maybe it is still that guy who's hanging out in the, in the Tall Trees Town era, area. But it is, I mean, at this point, you know, you have Balin dies and Euron is like just like a day away from the Iron Islands when that happens. So it's, right. I, I suppose it's a quite, I mean, you know, Slaver's Bay is, is far away from Westeros, but George is not one for exact maths in terms of, of travel. So it's, if he intends that to be Euron, sure, we can just we can just hand wave that away. And it's, it's interesting to consider what, what Euron might have had in mind for the Unsullied. Like we, when we see him... Yeah, that's sh- what I was going to ask you. When we see him show up in the Iron Islands in a Feast for Crows, he's got a full crew. And who, know, who knows how long he's had them, but they seem pretty devoted to them. And they're, they're people from, from all over. They're not Iron Islanders. So it fits his MO that he would he would pick up another crew elsewhere. But I'm curious, like, if he had another ship ready to go that he would then stock with Unsullied, was he planning on using them to, like, you know, cement his hold on the Iron Islands? I mean, like, you know, the Iron Islands are kind of a weird place to take the Unsullied, right? Like, they're infantry, and you're taking them to a handful of islands where most of the fight is happening on the sea. Like, the Unsullied are not much use in a naval battle, so it was... Was, you know, Euron had intended, at least his plan A was to go back east to Slaver's Bay. Maybe that's when he was intending to use the Unsullied as part of his uh, attempts to get Danny on his side. And it's also just interesting just because he, he was already calling himself a king, apparently. Which is funny because at this point, if he was here, he, he's not the king yet. But he's I, I like, it fits Euron's character that he would already be a step ahead of himself and already calling himself a king, even though Balin's not dead. That does make me think it might be him. Yeah, that grandiose version of himself was uh-huh. was probably there for for a long time. I, I I think you know, 
I, I think like the Corsair King is 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 Euron, and I do think too. I think I do think he's also the guy that sacked Tolstree's town because one of the things that Victorian notices in the Iron Islands is when he's coming to the King's Moon is that he sees the silence and he sees uh, crews of like different like um, races and shapes and size, and he sees a number of summer islanders and yeah, Euron's crew there mm-hmm. on uh, on the silence. Um, so uh, so I think what what George does is that he's tracing the movement of the Endgame villain of a Song of Ice and Fire because he's so fascinated to get to him, and I think like a good excellent villain he makes like the movements really subtle so when he shows up in a feast for crows well that's the thing he shows up in a feast for crows and everybody's like oh this guy just shows up out of nowhere and i can imagine like george like slapping the back of his like back of his hand with his head forehead and being like no i've been showing him all along he's been coming you know i'm doing that comic book thing where you see the villain in the background i'm mm-hmm. showing rorschach mm-hmm. there in the background of the, of the comic pain for every single scene holding the end is near sign right you know, exactly from from watchman that's that's what i think is is, is happening with with your own great joy yeah i i don't know what he plans to do with the unsighted i mean to talk historically, you know, like the Romans would often use their own infantry kind of as like naval marines. Like they didn't have any concept of like people like fighting on ships and stuff like that. So they would just like ram another ship and board it and try attempt to take it. Um, but it, it, it's it's curious to me, like, yeah, what 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 Euron would have done with the Unsullied there. I do think there is probably something in Euron's mind which has this idea that he wanted to show how far and wide he traveled because mm-hmm. he has a, that line about how you know good point every time my, my, my sails show up everyone is praying and he has the physical evidence of seeing every people from all walks of life that are part of his crew now that have been taken captive and of course have had their tongues removed by by your great joy which demonstrates how far and wide he's conquered and how black of a black heart of a pirate that he is because he is posing of course as the ultimate Ironborn pirate, which I think is uh, you've done some excellent work in uncovering that all that is just a bullshit image meant to just fit that short term goal of uh, of taking the sea stone chair and and wearing the and becoming the king of salt and rock before, of course, uh, rising as the uh, nihilistic version of himself, the human form of another without becoming a white himself, but in soul and spirit form for sure. Well, Euron in the Forsaken confirmed for us what everyone had, most people had assumed to be true, that he was responsible for Balin Greyjoy's death. So maybe in a, another chapter in the Winds of Winter, Euron will mention in passing having sacked Taltree's town. And us yes. nerds will go, yes, there it is. There's confirmation. There's correct. That'll, <laughs> that'll just be a, a perfect little, a little gift to us. I love little gifts from George. Little gifts from George make me so happy. So yes, I hope that we'll get that. I hope we'll have him mention, like have an offhand reference to Astapor as well uh-huh. and to more more references to Karth, just because I I, I love that stuff because it helps to kind of fill in the, the background details, which of course makes this character so interesting and unique and will make him an excellent endgame villain in A Song of Ice and Fire. But I think that is going to wrap us up for this analysis of A Storm of Swords Daenerys 2 Part 1. As always, thank you so much for listening. And of course, thank you to all of our patrons for supporting us. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiif, where our patrons get early access to our weekly episodes, bonus episodes every month, and a lot of other great benefits. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiif, or shoot us an email at notacastasoiif at gmail.com, and you can find me at poor Quentin on Twitter. And we want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Marybald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Way of Course, 
Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam K, Wisdom Benjicut, Al- Alchemist of Set San Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Hodinus, a prostitute, Lady Silverwing, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Septon T-Bone, the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Memes, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planetos Society, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Lady Ken of House Motown, Goddess of Sips and Wine, Sir Andrew of H-Town, Archmaster Hugh of the Tower, whose rod and ringer of tinfoil, Aaron Dampair, Prophet of the Forsaken and High Priest of Euron Crow's Eye, and our newest High Lord, everybody say hi to Ned M. So thank you so much, as always, to our High Lords and Ladies, and a special welcome to Ned M. We're so happy to have you with us. Yeah, thank you so much for supporting us, and welcome Lord Ned M. to the High Lord table. Must be nice. So, join us next week for a Storm of Swords Daenerys 2 Part 2, in which Daenerys Targaryen has a conversation with two of her followers and has a conversation of sorts with Eerie um, later that night, shall we say. And of course, that ends with one of the most famous lines in A Song of Ice and Fire said, again, why does Jorah Marmont get all these great lines <laughs> in the series? It just drives me up a fucking wall. It's true. Jorah gets the Rhaegar fought, fought nobly and all the other fine adverbs, but then yes, and Rhaegar died. A very a, a critical line for the series that we'll, we'll talk about at length next week. Cannot wait to do that with you, sir. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you one more time to our patrons for supporting us, and we'll see you next week for A Storm of Swords, Daenerys 2, Part 2. <laughs>